Uh, my name is Jason. If I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here at the house, and it is a delight um, to be here with you tonight. Um, before we unpack First Thessalonians chapter four, a couple things. Uh, in a couple of weeks uh, was Holy Week, uh, where we, as, as a, the church around the world, um, there are some Christians have different calendars. Um, it remembers Jesus's death and his resurrection, uh, and in the week leading up to his to Easter Sunday, um, we, we typically churches will call it Holy Week, and there's lots of kind of things happening at local churches and whatever else. Anyway, that week, if you would like to get baptized, we have a couple students that are getting baptized um, that are that are with us every week. Jesus. Um, calls his church out into the world to make disciples of all nations, to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach people to obey everything he commands. And if you've never been baptized before, please come talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about, you know, if you're connected to a local church in town, what that process looks like, if this is the time for it, if you want to wait, uh, what preparation for that looks like. I'm just, I don't know, it sounds weird. It sounds different to me. Um, but let me know. Also, um, lights are on now. Bring your Bibles on Tuesday. That'd be rad. Uh, we're in First Thessalonians chapter 4. If you can't find it, it's next to a bunch of T's. Um, kind of near the end. There's probably an index at the beginning. And we have some free Bibles back there that you can take. Um, and if that's not nice enough for you, Caleb Sanders will get you a nicer one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, I think that's good. Um, let me pray. Well, pray with me, actually. That'd be wonderful. Father, uh, would you send your spirit right now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, friends, in the past six months, um, my wife has lost her mom and I lost one of my best friends. Uh, death's not new to me. Uh, my grandparents that I've been close with have died. Students I've ministered to have died. At the beginning of my following Jesus, my 24-year-old mentor died of cancer. But the reality of death has been brought home to me uh, in some new ways these past few months. And what's more, even though uh, I still feel pretty young in my 40s, whatever, uh, I, I know, yeah, take advantage of it because we're not going to laugh too much in this sermon, okay? Um, I, know that, I know that I'm going to experience a lot more death if I live another 40 years. My friend who just died, uh, his daughters are friends with my daughters. And so my daughters are thinking in new ways that they haven't um, expressed or I think been given reason to think before uh, about the fact that I am not guaranteed in their life, that I could be taken from them. And one night in particular stands out to me. I may have shared this with some of you. I may have shared it here on a Tuesday. I tried to search my notes. I couldn't find it. But, um, but it connects so well with the scripture passage tonight. I want to risk sharing it again. A couple of months ago, I was talking and praying with my youngest daughter, Audrey, before she went to sleep. And she had been an emotional wreck for a couple of days. Um, and I think my wife and I could tell there was some pretty deep stuff stewing in like the recesses of her heart. And, and so I just asked her. It was just she and I. I don't know where my other daughter was at the moment. Um, I don't know. But, but Audrey and I were alone. Um, so I asked her if she was scared of me dying or of her own death. And she was pretty stunned, I think, that I asked her that. But she said, yeah. And pretty immediately, my mind flooded with all kinds of really nice things I could say. Like, um, that we're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You know? Neither one of us is going to die, honey. You know, I'm your dad. And I'm always going to be your dad. Those kinds of things. 
Uh, but the truth is I can't guarantee those things, y'all. And I couldn't look at her in the face and promise her that I could carry that stuff through. I knew that if I did die somehow soon, that it would multiply her suffering if I had told her that it couldn't happen. So I thought maybe I could comfort her with probabilities. All this is going really quick through my head, which this never works, okay? Like, like listen, it's statistically really likely that you and I are both going to live for another 20 to 40 years. That's not going to work, okay? But, but I played that out in my head, and so I knew that wasn't going to work, okay? But just like, like I, I knew that was silly. Anyway, I knew what I should say. I knew that I should just tell her the truth, but I was scared. But I want to value in, in our family, I want, in my life, I want to value truth and goodness and beauty in our home. I want to model that with how I talk to my kids. I don't always do that, but there was this moment, thanks be to God, that I, I shot her straight. My little nine-year-old girl, I looked at her in the eyes and I said, it's pretty sad that we're all going to die, isn't it? And I got so angry at the fact that my daughter is going to die one day. Even like saying it right now, like I can feel it. Like, should I be admitting this? Like we all live in a culture where I don't know if we, I don't know why we don't, I don't know if we actually explicitly say it, but it's like this agreement that we we shouldn't talk that way. We should keep quiet about this terrible fact that we all face death. I felt like I was saying Voldemort's name, you know? But I told her how angry it makes me that she's going to have to go through that and how sad it makes me that she's probably, statistics, she's probably going to have to watch me go through that. And we both just wept, my little nine-year-old and I. And Anna and I had just given her this new Bible and so I asked her if I could read her something out of it that I think about a lot. This is what it's like to be um, a kid with me as your dad. I open up to Psalm 92 um, and I read, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I just marveled with her at this verse for a bit, how the Bible teaches us to think about death. And we don't want to think about it, but we're told that we gain wisdom from thinking about it. That's true. But I said, it's pretty confusing, isn't it? She said, yeah. I said, yeah, for me too. So I said, can I read another one? She said, yeah. And I turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living take it to heart. So not only are we told to number our days, but it's wiser to spend time at funerals than at parties. This is in your Bibles. And I asked her, I said, why do you think this is? And she just kept looking at me. Just, man, I've never seen so intense a look. Her eyes just kept, it was, was, um, I, I knew that I was all on holy ground. I had no idea if I was doing the right thing. But she was just staring at me and she wouldn't blink. And her eyes just kept filling and pouring and filling and pouring and filling and pouring. And she wouldn't blink. And there was something going on and she couldn't look away. And so I did the honorable thing and I didn't look away. And I just shared tears with her and we just sat in it. And I, I knew, I knew, friends, I just, there's nothing I could rescue her from. None of us get out of this thing alive. I finally said something like, honey, I don't know. But when I think about the fact that life is so brief, it helps me to remember that you're a gift and it's wild that I get any time with you at all. So I'm really thankful for it and it helps me to remember not to waste my time with you. So there's some wisdom in that. 
And so we cried for a while longer, talked about it for a bit. Then I asked her if I could read her a psalm that was less intense and nicer. Uh, And so we read from Psalm 139 about how God knows our hearts and there's nowhere we could hide from him. We're never hidden from him. We prayed together and I'll just, I'll never forget the look on her face. I mean, y'all, the last thing that I really want to talk about to my kids, talk about with my kids is death, especially their own death. But there was some tremendous connection with Audrey and I that we shared in this moment and I could feel like things moving. I could feel like new possibilities for intimacy and trust because I was shooting her straight and she knew I was telling her the truth. Somehow, it's like saints and kids have this ability. They know if you're lying to them. And she could tell that I was telling her the truth and somehow I know I gained some credit to her. Because here I was not lying to her about it. It was terrifying. In our scripture passage tonight, this young church is dealing with death. This church in Thessalonica. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 if you want to turn to it and look at it. We don't know the details, but some people among their community have died. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to this church, if you don't know, almost all the New Testament things we call books are actually just letters written from uh, the apostles or disciples of Jesus to people, communities, church people in the New Testament time, uh, 2,000 years ago. So Paul writes this letter to, to this church in Thessalonica, and it's the first one we know about, so we call it First Thessalonians. And he wants to encourage them in the midst of their grief. We're going to face this too. Perhaps you didn't come here tonight wanting to think about death, okay? Um, I don't think any of us do. But we're going to face it nonetheless. And ignoring the promises of Jesus leaves us without hope when we do. God forbid that we are the people who have hope to offer in the face of death and we keep our mouths shut. What if one of the reasons we don't think about death is because we don't have hope? And with God's help, we're going to address that tonight. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells this church that he wants them to know what's going to happen and what God has promised them in Jesus Christ so that they can grieve differently than the people in the world grieve. We are all going to grieve. When we lose something we love, the God-given emotional response to that loss is sadness and grief. But in the face of death, the world grieves without hope. And so because we have no hope and we're clinging to thin threads of comfort, we say things like, well, they're in a better place now, without any real confidence that that's true. Or we try to comfort each other by saying something like, we will never forget. But of course we will. And even if by some miracle we didn't forget, we too will die, and so too will our memories with us. Or we say things like, they're still here with us in our hearts. Which of course is true. But that is not the same thing as them being with us alive in their bodies. And to the world, there is no hope for that. And so this is all we can offer. Paul says, we who are in Christ grieve differently. Why? Surely we miss our loved ones and are wounded by their departure from us. Why do we grieve differently? What is different about our grief? The Christian hope is galvanized by the greatest moment in history. 
When Jesus rose from the grave, the great fact in this great fact in time changes the whole scope of possibilities and futures. Christians in the early church were not being accused of accepting Jesus into their hearts. That is important. They were confessing Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus was Lord. They were confessing Jesus is Lord. The one who lived among us and whom we killed, he has risen again and is seated on high, reigning over all things. He is Lord. The news of Jesus rising from the grave is the news which set the world on fire. This is why Paul is on trial at the end of his life in Acts chapter 24 when he cries out to everyone standing around him, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The Christian witness and verve and confidence is riding on the reality of the resurrection of the incarnate Son of God. Because the church saw in Christ's resurrection her very own, our own, yours and mine. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Romans chapter 8. Just as Jesus' body was risen from the grave, God will also raise up our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. First meaning there will be a second and a third and on down the seemingly innumerable line of everyone who is in Christ Jesus, though, of course, they are all actually numbered and known by him. Remember Psalm 139. But right now I'm talking about Acts 26 and Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the first fruits of everyone who will come after him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just as Jesus rose from the grave so too we shall rise. This is the confidence that they had in the face of death. Christianity is not a private and personal religion. It is a public trust in cosmic reality. The cosmic reality of Jesus Christ rising from the grave is why the early church said Jesus is Lord and not Jesus was Lord. He is Lord and he is reigning still. And the implications are infinite. Though we might begin by realizing death is not the end. Not for us, nor for the ones that we love. And so the Apostle Paul encourages the church with this fact, this church who is mourning the death of their friends, he wants them to know that they are not left behind. Those friends who have died are not now left behind and forgotten in whatever work God is doing in the world. He wants them to know that. He actually says, so when Christ returns, if you read ahead in our passage, when Christ returns, we will not precede them in meeting him. They actually are going to rise first and they're, because they're not going to want to receive him without us. We are, those who are left alive still, we are going to meet together with Jesus and them reigning from on high. Whether we live or die, we are always with the Lord. No one is left behind, Paul says. And so he wants to tell this church, as you grieve, because these friends of yours have died, grieve knowing what's coming 
grieve knowing what, what fact you place your confidence in. We grieve knowing we are all somehow mysteriously bound up and held together in Jesus Christ, our King. We grieve knowing that we will see each other again someday. We grieve knowing that what awaits us on the other side of the veil is something which can only be described as more than conquering. I imagine this text is pretty wild for some of us. There's a lot of imagery here and I used it on purpose. There are a ton of texts to choose from in talking about death or resurrection. This one's got trumpets sounding and angels declaring and dead rising and the Son of God coming out of the clouds and us flying. It's wild. You may struggle to believe that your body could come out of the ground or that you will see your loved ones again or behold them with your very eyes. That we will meet God in the air with like baller trumpets blasting through the sky. It seems to me that Paul does believe that we're going to fly. They're wild promises. But I'm reminded of one of my heroes saying, children already know that dragons exist. They already know dragons exist. Fairy tales tell them that dragons can be killed. We don't read fairy tales to children to try to tell them dragons exist. They already believe that. We read them to kids to tell them that dragons can be killed. Paul's not getting into this conversation with this church to have theological conversations with them about people flying or the logistics of bodies being reconstituted after years of decomposition in the ground. He's not telling them this stuff to try to convince them of something they don't already believe. This passage of scripture was written to a group of people who already believed in the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't written to try to convince them to believe in the resurrection. It was written to people who were grieving in the face of death. And the dragons of despair and loneliness were devouring them. This letter was written to tell this young church that those dragons of despair and of loneliness could be killed. And the dragons of despair and isolation or loneliness can be slain today as well. For those of you who are not Christians, hear that the Christian claim is that Jesus rose from the grave and that the same power which raised him will give life to our mortal bodies as well. We do believe that because of of who Jesus is and the power and presence of his Holy Spirit and the great promises that we have in him that we can live differently now. Because of our identity being rooted and established in Jesus, we don't need to, for example, chase identity and power and security in this life. Because we believe those things are already secured for us in Jesus, or at least that's what we're leaning into and we're working out in our own meager attempts at faith. Remember Riley talking about the power of even a mustard seed size of that. Because of that, there is this grace-fueled way that we can live and have hope right now. We can live differently, marked by courage and a lack of fear and full of love without agendas. For sure, that is offered to us now. But the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I preached on this at the end of last year if you want to check it out on our podcast, I guess. Um, but he says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 15, 18. He says, if, um, if we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. 
It's very evident to this one who wrote like something like 17 letters of the New Testament that we should be thinking about something which transcends death. We should be thinking about not just what's going on in this life, but what comes after it. Not seeing God, Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the church, just as some means to the end of our security in this life. Our crowning hope isn't in some way to live differently now. It's in the gracious way God accepts us and loves us and the promise that he will carry us through death and into glory. We are promised that these light and momentary afflictions that we suffer now are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Death is so defanged by Jesus that the scriptures even dare to call it a kind of birth. So if you're not a Christian, I just want you to hear that clearly. We don't fundamentally believe Christianity is an inner heart feeling or some kind of personal affirmation. We are the ones proclaiming a faith in a historic reality with cosmic implications. That God loves us, that nothing can separate us from his love. That the one we killed and who rose from the grave made us and sustains us and is reigning over all things. And what's in store for us is reigning with him in a new heavens and a new earth. All of this we have in Jesus and he is the one our faith is in. We are going to be unpacking some of those future promises in the next four weeks. But for you brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ tonight, I want you to have hope in the face of death. I know you're young. Some of you in this room, some of you in this room have experienced uh, quite acutely um, pain and agony and grief that comes with death. Statistically speaking, many of us have not experienced it like we will. I want you to have a hope in the face of death for whenever you face it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the hope we have in everything which awaits us in this life and the next. I put this on the back of your flyer because I hope you can remember this. We gave you like 17 flyers, so good luck. Uh, Christian, what is your hope? That I belong body and soul in this life and in the next to Jesus Christ our Lord.